Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor here in Seattle, and Rachel Mutter, Editor in Kuala Lumpur. Hello, you two. Let's jump right in. Uh, of course, coronavirus still hangs over everything, but uh, but there's some new uh, developments that are happening that have become kind of pressing in addition to kind of the overarching trends that coronavirus has brought into all our lives. We do have seasonal fisheries coming up, and some of them are extremely important, the biggest one being the Alaska wild salmon season. Uh, we have the traditional Copper River opener coming up in about a month, and that's the first salmon that comes uh, that comes out of Alaska, or pretty much first salmon that comes out of Alaska each year. And it's highly celebrated. Um, there is a big, uh, big celebration of, uh, of the fish coming down via a jet. And everyone goes in to, and greets it. And the fish are rushed off to uh, a high-end restaurant. And people pay ridiculous amounts, $70 per pound for these fish. So that is not going to happen. Uh, there won't be that same fanfare. And in fact, everything's likely to be different in Alaska this year. Um, John, I'm going to kick it over to you. Maybe you can uh, set the stage a little bit about what some of the big issues are about the Bristol Bay season in particular this year and uh, and uh, how coronavirus plays into it. Yeah, I mean, the, the big concern right now is some of the uh, native groups uh, that live in the region, in the Bristol Bay region, um, are very concerned about bringing in all these quote-unquote foreign workers, and all that means is workers from outside Alaska for the most part, um, for, for fear, understandably, that they will bring with them um, coronavirus and infect uh, some of these native communities, which could be catastrophic given the lack of medical facilities and and you know these communities are small there's potential for it to rip right through them which would be horrible of course so uh you know right now uh the bristol bay uh is still on um there are lots of precautions that are being discussed and um you know those types of things to check and quarantine the employees before they come in to Alaska, um, keep them contained once they are in there, you know, social distancing in the plants and, and all those things. So at this point, it's still a go, but it is extremely uneasy. And I guess we'll kind of get a test of it in Copper River in oh, about a month when, when that kicks off. But, you know, all of this is happening um, at the same time that the processing sector in Alaska is really struggling. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about this many times, but um, there's overcapacity. Peter Pan is, is weak. Icicle is weak. You know, some of the longtime players are just not in good shape financially. Um, you have Trident and Silver Bay, which seem to be running away with with the uh, processing uh, capacity and everything. So this couldn't come at a worse time for the processing sector in general. So it's going to be a really interesting season. Yeah. 
No, I, you, you're you've summed it up really nicely, and I think it's um, you know the the Bristol Bay salmon fishery is worth four hundred fifty million dollars, something like that. There's a lot of money on the line here. A lot of uh, a, a lot of people in the community depend on the fishery for their livelihood, um, or at least the the knock on effects of the fishery. Um, and yeah, there's estimates that around thirteen thousand additional people come into uh, come into the community there, which is you know it's only a, a few thousand people in the Bristol Bay area. So there's there's legitimate concerns and then on the other side a lot of fishermen want to fish both in region and out of the region so um it's really really complicated um you know it, just in hearing the different sides of this of this story both from processors and fishermen themselves and um and local people there um you know one of the things that's come up uh time and time again is the Spanish flu of nineteen eighteen, nineteen nineteen. Um and and it's it's funny because when we talk about the Spanish flu, it's completely abstract. There was fifty million people that died in the Spanish flu worldwide. And I think for most of us we probably can't name a relative that um that had the Spanish flu. Um and we probably really can't pinpoint a lot about how it it swept across the world or which communities it hit hardest unless you're a student of history um and that's a really specific area of history it's a lot different in the bristol bay region because you know the the native communities that are there um have been there for a long long time and when that flu hit in around 1919 um and it was it was it thought to have been brought up on cannery ships, by the way. Um, but when it hit around that time, um, you couldn't get up to the, the region for several months out of the year. Um, so they couldn't bring aid or support or even know what was going on in the, in the region. So those thousand people, when the U.S. Coast Guard did finally get up there to, uh, to get to these villages and um, give aid, they were met with just pure devastation and the spanish flu hit uh primarily uh, adults and older people um so it took kind of like the the working uh you know responsible members of the community that that were responsible for livelihoods out um and it left the kids so when the coast guard um went up there and um and went to rescue these communities um, the scenes they found. I mean, they they wrote notes and and uh, in their in their um, logs about what they found. Um, and there's a professor that uh, I was reading some of her work a couple days ago, and her name's Maria Gilson de Valpin, and she's a nursing professor at James Madison University in Virginia, and she has some of these notes from the Coast Guard, and they're they're disturbing, and you could see how disturbed the Coast Guard was when they came up to that region. Um, and here's one quote. Practically all adult natives of that place had died, leaving 12 orphan children entirely without protection. And that would have been for several, several months. Um, and another note, it said, quote, the entire population numbering seven persons had died. The dogs had stripped their bones. Jeez. And that was a pretty common, uh, that was a pretty common note that they made there was how the dogs had eaten corpses. Corpses were just lying in the, you know, in, in the, out there in the middle of the, the villages. So, you know, you have to think those orphan kids, 
um, they grew up remembering this very, very clearly. So it's definitely part of, it's part of the, it's in the air there, you know, when you grow up there. And certainly if you're native, it's in the air that that's not, it's just not an abstraction. So it may, I think from some parties are kind of seeing it as like, oh, you know, it's kind of wringing their hands and, you know, making a big deal about this, but it is different, and I think we're all pretty scared of coronavirus and COVID, and it's getting more and more scary as people that we know or friends of friends get it. I mean, then it becomes very, very real. So, um, yeah, just just a quick history lesson that I think people kind of may not understand about those villages, and when, when you hear cities, native groups coming out against it, there's a reason why there's a reason why they feel this way because that is that is um it's a very visceral visceral thing but on the other hand you know again it's an important part of the community it's an important driver of the economy for uh for some people there as well so i don't know it's it's a bit it's a bit messy what's the what's the solution though if if foreign workers foreign workers i mean they're not actually there's a lot of americans go up there right but um What's the solution? If they're not allowed to go up to work in the processing plants, um, who does it? Or, or does nobody do it? I mean, I think there was a note recently in a, in a story we wrote um, from the chief medical officer of one of the, the regions in Alaska saying that, you know, there's plenty of people now out of work in Alaska and that they could be in the processing factories um, doing that work themselves rather than bringing in lots of workers from elsewhere. Is, is that being from Alaska, is that something that you think local Alaskans would do? Is that the solution? Well, maybe times have changed, but certainly it would never have happened uh, when I was growing up, or very little. It's seen as work that is not done by locals, you know? I mean, bear in mind, I haven't lived there in, you know, over 20 years, so things, things may have changed dramatically, but just that's... If you fished, that was a uh, legitimate way to make money there if you were a, a local. Um, you know, but if you're working on what they call the slime line when you're there just, you know, um, helping can fish or, you know, heading and gutting fish, that wasn't seen as, as, you know, ideal work. But I guess now, yeah, people are out of work and, and maybe they'd do that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty simplistic way of looking at it, you know, of saying like, you know, hey, well, you were an accountant. And now you don't have a job, so, you know, why don't you dig ditches? And and maybe that's what we're coming to with the global economy. But, you know, it's kind of, it's playing fast and loose with, um, oh, here's an open job, and here's somebody that's unemployed. Like, we don't think like that, you know. That's that's not, um, that's not really how people that are, um, have developed a career necessarily or, or have a vocation really think, or at least it's not an easy switch to make. So... Are the people there to do the work? In some cases, um, from a pure sort of manpower standpoint, I suppose, maybe. Um, but I I don't think that is, is going to be a viable solution. Um, but I do think that John's right. I think the fishery will probably go ahead. Um, but, you know, and, and I think the processing companies are going to do what they can to mitigate things. But... What concerns me, and and we've seen this, and we're going to see it a lot more, is we've seen these cases of coronavirus pop up uh, in Chile, in Norway. We haven't seen that many pop up in seafood, um, at least none that have been reported. Um, 
but there will be. There's going to be a lot more, and and for sure in the U.S., um, JBS, Smithfield, Purdue, uh, Tyson, Cargill, you name it. Every big major protein, land-based protein producer has had a coronavirus outbreak. And not just one person, it's spread throughout their plants. It's caused deaths. You know, workers have protested. I mean, it's, yeah, it's probably going to move ahead, but I, I think I think we're going to be on a knife's edge because if there's one case... Um, all those, all those documents that were submitted, all those mitigation plans, I'm going to be cynical. And again, I grew up there. And so, um, I'm looking at it from a very different lens from the 1980s and nineties. And, you know, that, that's where my mind is. But when I read those mitigation plans, I thought this is ridiculous because a lot of them are, I think if you read them and you don't know that region, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. If you've been into a processing plant in, say, Grimsby or a processing plant in, I don't know, you know, like for Thai Union or for a major Chinese company or a major American company in the in the um, contiguous U.S., you kind of have a vision of, of like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of health protocols. There's a lot of a lot that goes into to um, worker safety and. I'm not saying that the conditions aren't safe in Alaska. I think people do, um, you know, they, they put a lot of work into those factories. But at the same time, I, when you read it on paper, you think, yeah, this is reasonable. The amount of fish, the volume of fish that comes in in like a few weeks, it's, it's unimaginable. It's like, you know, it's not like a production line. It is like a, you know, it, it's a mad, mad dash to get all those fish either filleted and frozen or, you know, some uh, going out fresh, some, uh, you know, a lot being put into cans. Um, to do all of that in such a narrow period of time and then, like, to expect somebody that's been working, you know, like an 18-hour shift to like, oh, yeah, don't forget to put Purell on your hands before you, you know, go into the cafeteria. It's ridiculous. Um, it, it is, I, I just I just think it's ridiculous. So I think all you can do is on the front end hope that they can filter out the people that come into the, the uh, come into the region with COVID. And if they can filter them out, great. Um, if they can't, I don't think there's, you know, all the mitigation plans in the world won't guarantee that it's not going to run right through a, a processing plant. And in terms of the community, I'm less worried about it getting into the community because they are relatively sequestered, uh, the processing plant workers. But then again, there is contact, you know, when you when the brailers are lifted and you're lifting your fish into the processing plant and fish tickets, and th there's a lot of different ways. And I'm you know, I think all of us who read something new each day about how COVID behaves and we start freaking out, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like wiping down now the stuff that we get delivered, the food that we get delivered. Now they're saying you should wipe it down, which is kind of crazy because you think, God, you know, just how virulent is this thing? So, so I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think it's going to go forward and I don't expect there'll be any state or federal, mandates that are going to ease anybody's mind in that region. So short of civil action um, and people, you know, laying themselves on the on the runway or, you know, um, or trying to close down the plants, I can't see that, that they'll keep people from going up and, and processing fish or keeping fishermen from going up.
It is a massive fishery. It's so important on the global stage, um, you know, for the the U.S., uh, the Japanese, the European markets. I mean, it's critically important. So I do not envy the processors trying to figure this out. And John, like you said, especially in a time where the last thing that they have money for is capital investments and to do this right I mean, you have to, it, it's going to cause capacity issues. And so you, if you're going to have distance between the workers, um, that means you can do less processing. And when all this, they, they've had to shut processors down quite a bit uh, over the years because they've been, you know, filled up with capacity and the processors have to say, wait, we can't take any more fish. We have to process the ones we have. So, um yeah, it's. Uh, I, I don't envy anybody that's involved in that in that whole um, in that whole industry up there right now. Be you fisherman, processor, or community member, it is um, stressful time. So we shall see. We'll report more on that as as things develop. So earlier this week, we had our first ever uh, digital event, and it was fascinating. We got great guests. We had uh, Frank Dulcich, the CEO of Pacific Seafood Group. We had Jan Tharp, the CEO of Bumblebee. We had Carlos Diaz, the CEO of Biomar. Tim Fires, who's the president of Supply Track NPD Group. Uh, we had Andreas Kvame, the CEO of Grieg Seafoods. And we had uh, Stein Alexander Ochner from DNB and uh, Frere Tordeson from, from DNB. Um, I'll, I'll kick it over to you, Rachel. I mean, what were some of your big takeaways. Uh, I was really, really uh, impressed with um, how how frank our, our speakers were. And um, yeah, I learned a lot. It was actually really refreshing, I think, to hear these, these guys speak. We've been writing about coronavirus now for a couple of months, obviously, and it's, it's hard not to just feel doom and gloom about the whole situation, um, especially for the seafood industry with the sort of news that's, that's coming out. Um, but actually, this event gave me definitely sort of a fresh take on things and, and left me feeling a bit more positive about how things might turn out for the seafood sector. Um, everyone, I think without exception, was, I mean, positive is the wrong word, because obviously a lot of companies aren't going to come out well from this. But there was definitely a lot of focus on the positives Um from this whole scenario like what can be focused on in order for companies to survive uh, survive this crisis um and obviously these are you have to you have to keep in mind that these are all pretty big companies um with a lot of capital behind them so for them probably to make switches in their supply chain in their um product development is is easier than it is for some sort of small to medium-sized companies in the sector but still um, I think it gave them real food for thought on what can be focused on um, and what can be changed within companies in order to, to get through this. I mean, Frank Dulstich, I think, in particular, um, for me, gave some really interesting thoughts on sort of slimming down the supply chain. In his viewpoint, a lot of this that should be being done now should have been done earlier anyway in the seafood sector right we have a really complex supply chain it's quite fragmented um and this for him was an opportunity to actually tidy that up and to get on top of it in a way that should have probably been done years ago um so i think that's what's happening at pacific um and sort of focus on a few product lines as well i think was his 
was one of his takeaways rather than keeping going with mass product development, you know, look at where the market is heading. Food services has fallen off a cliff. Um, he sort of made the point that that was happening anyway uh, before coronavirus hit. Um, so, yeah, for him, it was an opportunity to, to look to other sectors, to, to narrow product lines and to really focus on what was going to get them through this crisis. Um, so it was interesting. And, I, and Jan Tharp had some sort of th similar thoughts. Uh, John, I know you've been, you've been writing more about her. Yeah, uh, I, I was really intrigued by Jan's uh, presentation, largely because Bumblebee was a, is at this point, for lack of a better description, a clear winner in the Corona situation. Their, you know, shelf-stable seafood sales have soared. And to put that in some numbers for you, I got some uh, data today from IRI, which tracks uh, U.S. retail sales and. So for the week ended February 16th, this would be before, you know, the most of the Corona stuff hit the U.S. Um, uh, shelf stable category sales were $45 million for that week, roughly. A month later for the week ended March 15th, the dollar sales in that category had exploded to over $149 million. So, I, I mean, that oh is God. just... Yeah, it, it, it's just amazing. And, you know, so she, her presentation was so good because she talked about how does a company absorb that supply shock, that demand shock on their product and get that to, you know, all these customers and in a timely way because, you know, people are running on these stores and just grabbing everything they can. So she went into some detail on, uh, similar to what you said, Rachel, with Frank, you know, trimming the skews um, uh, so they they had they could focus on the products that sell best, you know, were the best move, um, and that would that would um, add efficiency to the to the supply chain. So they went from uh, at their Santa Fe Springs plant, which is their main tuna packing plant in the U.S. They went from 90 skews down to 19. <laughs> so that gives you some idea of the amazing on the fly adjustments they had to make to their supply chain. And it's still going on. So I really was interested. And if you haven't listened to, to the um, webinar, I, I really encourage you to do so because um, like Rachel said, there, there was an upbeat, if you can use that word, tone uh, that a lot of these CEOs delivered. And hers was uh, similar in one way to Frank in the sense that, you know, she said there are going to be some good outcomes from a company point of view uh, after this is all done. And, and she talked about the, ri the, the need for more automation, the need for more technology and how this, this uh, crisis has accelerated companies, you know, uh, investigation and, and use of new automation, new technology. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I feel the same way uh, you did, Rachel. It's just, it, it was kind of refreshing to, to hear a little more detail on what's it, what it was like, what it's like on the front grounds, uh, on the front lines for these companies. Carlos Diaz also had uh, really interesting things to say about research and development and 
uh, and investing because I think that's always a, an interesting question is, is when a company hits rough waters like this, where should they cut back? Where should they draw down? And, you know, his, his response was, was no, we're going to continue to invest. We're going to continue to move through with the plans that we had. Obviously, uh, if you are on the supply side, maybe your concerns are a bit different than if you're on um, on the, the side of, of say, uh, Pacific or Bumblebee, where you, you are dealing with um, dealing with supply shocks from the raw material side. So that's the interesting thing is it's not that the takeaway I, I, I got from NPD, from Tim Fires at NPD as well, was it's not a demand issue. So the supply side... Uh, um, Andreas Kwame said this as well about farm salmon. So on the supply side, the demand is fine. Uh, fish feed side, demand is fine. What it is, is it as we're getting to the consumer, the consumer's just taking a lot of, of um, making a lot of adjustments to how they are, you know, how they've been behaving. So um, I thought that was fascinating as well, as there wasn't gloom about people not eating seafood anymore. It seems like Yes, habits of where they're eating has changed, but um, but I'll be curious, John, as you sort of um, talk to people like IRI and as we talk more to people like NPD and Nielsen and uh, and Contar and the rest. You know, what are these stats going to show at food service and retail for different species? You know, are we going to see similar upticks uh, as we saw with tuna? Because almost everybody we've been talking to has said there's been a big lift in retail. So I guess the question is, is that going to offset the losses in, uh, in food service? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's too early to know. And the, you know, that food service sector is so massive that my, my gut tells me it won't offset those losses, but, um, it certainly is good news in, in the seafood world. At least there is strong demand and there are channels um, to sell the products through. Um, that's not the case for every company right now. So, um, yeah, we'll have to see. We're digging into some of that data, as you mentioned, and hopefully I'll have uh, some reporting on that in the, in the week, in the coming week. If you were to sort of distill down some of the lessons just from, um, from those speakers, I mean, what, what, were they, what were they encouraging companies to do? I think to, Frank Delsich said it, I think, to clean up, to clean up their operations, um, to really bring focus into what they're doing um, and where it is that they want to be and where it is that, that that's going to survive through this this crisis, um, and to sort of put all their efforts into producing for those areas and producing those products um, for those services. So yeah, that's what to me came out of it, and and certainly I think you made the point about. Sort of different species, I think, are going to be affected quite differently from this. I mean, Alex Orkner um, in our event was talking about how farmed salmon uh, was pretty much sort of a safe haven in all of this. Uh, and sure, it's been it's been hit. We, we've seen that. Um, but his view from from DMB's perspective is that it's going to come out okay out of all of this because because the demand is there as you say and demand for farm salmon has never really been a problem um so as long as companies can sort out their logistics um sort out their supply chains and then they'll be okay 
Um, and I think that's what's interesting to me is that certain species I think are really going to sort of win in this and certain species really aren't. Um, I'd be concerned for the shrimp industry um, <laughs> at this point. I think that's one of the sectors that's, that's actually going to really feel the pain of this much more than anyone else. I think I think shrimp is eaten much more at food service, um, perhaps, than other products are. Um, it certainly doesn't have the retail presence. I don't think that, that things like bombed salmon have. So that, to me, was really interesting that sort of came out of it, that, that sure, I think certain companies and certain species and products are going to do all right out of this then you know others others just aren't so I think that's that's fascinating I, I think there was also a real just to bring one other element in actually um this sort of talk about automation and digitalization I think this has been a real theme um that we've noticed out of the coronavirus crisis and more and more people are sort of coming out of the woodwork and saying that the industry needs to be more efficient and part of that is being more automated and being more digitalized, um, having more systems in place that predict um, supply that, you know, that, that you, you need farms, for example, to be able to run by themselves in a situation like this. And the technology is absolutely there. A lot of the Norwegian salmon farming companies sort of have it on board already. They're not really using it to, to its full extent yet, but I think this will be the turning point. This will be where people really put those systems into play because you know this isn't the only event that's ever going to happen like this it might not be another pandemic but it will be something else there's always something um that, that the seafood industry seems to be sort of susceptible to being hit by so i think this yeah this is it this is the point that people really turn their businesses around and become more automated and become more digitalized um and yeah i think that's that's really interesting thing that sort of that's coming out of everything at the moment well, thanks, Rachel. I think that's a great note to leave it on. Uh, you can find our coverage of both the digital event and much, much more on intrafish.com. We have uh, our coronavirus blog kind of tracking the latest updates uh, that are happening and just kind of quickly summing up some of our coverage so you can see that there. And uh, we have a new coronavirus newsletter. If you're really, really wanting to keep on top of all of the news uh, about coronavirus and, uh, and yet don't really have the time to, to bounce around uh, all day on intrafish.com to catch every single story, um, sign up for that. It's a, it's a, useful, uh, a useful tool for keep, keeping up on things. And again, the full recording of the event uh, that we held on Tuesday is available on intrafish.com as well. It's easy to sign. It's uh, find. It's featured real prominently there on our front page. So go check it out. It was a great event, and uh, we were really, uh, really grateful to have all those speakers come join us. They gave really fantastic insight. Okay, well, on behalf of John and Rachel, I'll say goodbye, and we'll speak to you next week. <laughs>